people have expressed that just seeing the name Ida B. Wells Drive in a major high visibility location in a city the size of Chicago makes people feel a sense of pride um, that African Americans and African American women are recognized as being integral parts of this country. Today's episode of the Sight Black Women podcast is in commemoration of Ida B. Wells' birthday, which is July 16th. Wells was a civil rights activist, investigative journalist, and suffragist who advocated against the lynching of Black men and women. Here with me today is Professor Michelle Duster, the great-granddaughter of Ida B. Wells. Michelle Duster is an author, speaker, and educator who believes it is essential that the contributions women and African Americans made to the United States be told in a more complete and accurate way. She has written numerous articles and edited or contributed to a total of nine books. In addition, she's involved with various local and national public history projects that create, document, and promote the many untold stories of Black men and women. Some of her most notable books include Ida in Her Own Words, Ida from Abroad, and most recently, the co-edited anthology Michelle Obama's Impact on African American Women and Girls. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today for the Sight Black Women podcast. We're extremely excited and honored to have you here to have a conversation on your citational praxis and the work you do, making sure African-American stories are um, told and not just forgotten. So welcome and thank you. Thanks for having me, Michaela. Um, so you're an extremely accomplished author, um, speaker, and uh, professor, and I wanted to have a conversation with you about the work you do, um, and also how when I look at the body of your work and what you speak about, I can't help but draw parallels between what you do and what your great-grandmother did as far as documenting these stories um, that have been ignored, um, these Black history stories. So I wanted to ask if you feel like you were greatly influenced by your great-grandmother. Um, <laughs> I think people assume that I am doing the work that I am that I'm doing because of who my great grandmother was or because she influenced me. Um, but I, I, I hate to disappoint, but I think, first of all, I never met my great grandmother. She died in 1931 and I was born after 1931. Um, so I never met her. Um, she was my grandmother's mother. I knew my grandmother very well. And I'm related to Ida through my father. So, so Ida um, had four children. Her youngest child was um, Alfreda Barnett Duster. And then Alfreda had five children. And her middle child, Donald, was my father. Um, I think a lot of people assume that I'm related to Ida through my mother. And I think it's just because women, you know. But I'm related to, my, to uh, Ida through my father. And so I knew my grandmother very well who, like I said, was Ida's daughter. So the information that I have about um, Ida B. Wells is through oral history, basically through, you know, information that my grandmother shared. My father didn't even know Ida B. Wells because he was born one year after she died. Um, So the thing about it is that since she was my grandmother's mother and um, I learned about her through my grandmother, there's a, there's a limit to how much I learned about her because my grandmother was she died when I was in college, 
And so basically all the information that I got about her mother was from a child's perspective, you know. Um, and the other thing is that my grandmother was very focused on encouraging all of us, there were 15 grandchildren in total, um, to have our own identities and, and not tie who we are into who we were, late, were related to. And, um, and so I feel that I'm doing the work that I am because pretty much of my mother, which I'm related to either through my father, but my mother was, she grew up in the South, in the Jim Crow South. And um, she came to Chicago after she graduated from college. And so I grew up hearing stories from my mother about what it was like growing up in the Jim Crow South. And, um, and my mom was actually, I would consider to be a little bit on the militant side. Um, she was very outspoken, had a very strong personality. Um, she had very strong opinions about everything and was always encouraging and kind of indignant about speaking up for your rights and not letting anybody take advantage of you and, um, you know, feel proud of who you are and make sure that you, you tell somebody what you think <clears throat> and that kind of thing. So my mom also was an English teacher, and so she encouraged my writing. I guess she saw that I had some talent in that area. And so she was always like, you know... Um, they, she encouraged me to write. She also would edit my work because she was good. And she was funny because she was like, I'm not a good writer, but I can edit. Um, so she saw that I had some talent in writing and encouraged me to pursue it. So, I mean, getting back to the legacy of my great-grandmother, I knew that I was related to her. Um, honestly, I, it was a little de-emphasized. You know, I mean, you have to think about it. I was a child. I mean, when I'm five, six, seven years old, you know, my grandmother wasn't like, okay, well, let me sit you down and teach you who my who your great-grandmother was. She more was like, okay, you're related to this woman. She fought for equal rights. She fought for um, for people to have a better world. You know, how, mm -hmm. you, would t how you would explain yeah. it to a child. And when you're a kid, and I think almost everybody is pretty much the same when they're a child, they're just kind of like, um, I don't really feel like hearing all of these family stories. Can I watch my TV show? Mm -hmm. Can I run out and play? Mm -hmm. It wasn't very interesting to me as a kid. I just was like, whatever. You know, so it was more after I became an adult okay. that I started to become more curious. And I think as I became, grew more into uh, womanhood and got into the workplace mm -hmm. and started having my own experiences as a black woman in this country, um, I started wondering a little bit more on my own, how did my great grandmother handle that kind of hostility mm -hmm. that she faced that was way worse than anything I would ever face? Um, so it was more my curiosity bonding with her, sort of looking at her life okay. as a, from a woman's perspective. And that was after I graduated from college. That is, well, thank you so much for clar clarifying that. Because um, I didn't want to assume that, you know, you were directly influenced in that way. But um, I think that that was that's probably like a natural thought. A lot of people have like, as early as in elementary school, they taught us about Ida B. Wells. And so naturally I was like, oh, you know, I wonder how this, um, 
this familial history is passed down in your family for your experience. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. And I just wanted to know if you could tell us more about your academic trajectory, since you said that you didn't really um, start to or go and explore that aspect of your history until college. So um, before that, like what brought you to studying the things you studied um, in college? Well, I mean, backtracking a little bit, um, when I was in high school, I was on the newspaper, I was on the high school newspaper staff, and I was on the yearbook staff, um, and so I was just naturally, without being pushed, um, interested in telling stories, I was interested in the media, um, I was interested in documenting history in general, I mean, that was just what I would, I personally was attracted to. Okay. Um, I, I was, like I said, I was um, one of 15 <laughs> grandchildren of my of my grandmother, um, and there are other descendants who are uh, related through Ida's son. And so I'm far from the only descendant, but I think all of us were encouraged, like I said, to pursue what we were naturally gifted at or what we were interested in. And I was just the only one, for whatever reason, you know, that I was just interested in writing and in communications and media. I liked photography. I mean, I was just kind of artsy. Okay. Um, I, I was I was very artsy. I was all into crafts when I was growing up. I was always, you know, doing, making things, making kind of visual arts kind of things. Um, and I guess because the adults in my life noticed that I was interested and attracted to those type of things, they encouraged me to pursue them. But it wasn't like, you have to be like your great grandmother. Right, okay. You know, they were like, oh, wow, this kid is good at this. So, you know, let's encourage it. Um, and I didn't feel any pressure to live up to somebody else's legacy or live up to somebody else's reputation. And I'm so grateful for that because that's a lot of pressure mm -hmm. um, to put on anybody. And I'm so grateful that I was I grew up in a family that encouraged all of us to have our own identity and our own um skill set and our, follow our own interests. And all of us are very different. Everybody, all of my cousins and I, we're all in different professions. Um, and it just, we just all have different talents and skills. Um, so I just happened to be drawn to, to that kind of work. Um, in fact, when I was thinking about colleges, I actually applied to journalism schools and I actually got in, but then my father was the one that was like, well, you know, you're only 18. Are you sure you want to focus on only one, you know, kind of profession? Maybe you should expose yourself to other kinds of um, topics and then see if you really are interested. He was kind of concerned about me pigeonholing myself at a young age. And so his advice was I could always go to journalism school for graduate school if I went through four years of college and exposed myself to other topics and then I still was interested, mm -hmm. then I could do that. And so I ended up going to Dartmouth College, which is a liberal arts small college in New Hampshire. Um, and <laughs> it was kind of funny because I did, I mean, by, based on the curriculum there, I had I had no choice but to try a lot of other okay. topics. They didn't even have a journalism, um, you know, minor or major or anything like that. I mean, it was just all liberal arts. And so I, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do because it was just so broad. So I finally settled on psychology. Okay. 
um, because I guess I was, I felt like, well, people are kind of interesting, you know, why are they like the, the way they are? Mm. And so that was, you know, just curious to me to learn about basically what drives people. And I felt that psychology was a very um, universal kind of major. And I was like, no matter what I want, want to go into, they're people, hopefully. Um, and so I can, you know, apply that knowledge. And the first job that I had after college um, was I decided I was still kind of interested and nobody could stop me from working in a profession that dealt with writing and, mm-hmm. and uh, images and black culture and history and all that kind of stuff. And so my first job was at an ad agency as a copywriter. Um, So I went totally the opposite of most of the people that I went to college with because, I mean, Dartmouth is very focused on being what basically my friends and I call a master of the universe, you know. (laughs) You're supposed to run the world or whatever. And um, so my classmates, I was surrounded by people that were all going to Wall Street or all going into medicine or law or whatever. And I'm like, "Eh, I kind of want to work in something creative, you know. So I I felt like an outlier even among the people that I was surrounded by in college. Um, But I I ended up working in advertising. I worked at a small all-black agency um, for numerous reasons. <laughs> um, one is that I really was interested in being involved in producing images that I felt were positive or relevant to my own personal experience, which I didn't feel like I saw enough of on television at the time. And um, and then I, I also was really kind of welcomed being in an all-black environment. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, I really felt that was nurturing for me um, after being in a predominantly, you know, white elitist kind of environment right. for four years. I really, really looked forward to being back in Chicago in an environment where I was around people that understood where I was from. And um, there's just so many things you don't have to explain or right. or just you can kind of breathe and be yourself. And so... That was important to me um, when I first graduated from college. And basically the trajectory of my career is I started off doing that. Um, I got interested in being more involved in the production aspect. So I ended up going to film school at Columbia College, Mm -hmm. one class at a time. And that segued into I got an opportunity to work on a couple of documentary films. I ultimately ended up in New York City. Um, and I still was interested in working in images and telling our, our culture and highlighting the positive parts of our culture because I feel like it's so underrepresented still to this day, but that was a while ago <laughs> in the 90s. Um, and so I worked at the, I worked in a lot of different environments, um, one of them being the um, Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, mm-hmm. producing mm-hmm. Um, public programs. And so that gave me an opportunity to meet a lot of people um, that, and that was an amazing experience working there. Um, not just the the Schomburg itself being surrounded by our culture, but just like I said, the, the number of people that I got an opportunity to meet, some of the people I always admired. It right. was such a, a, a really, um, what's the word, kind of validating experience to be around these people that, um, 
I had always seen on TV or read about, and I'm like, oh my God, I get a chance to meet them, like Harry Belafonte, for instance. Really? You oh, know? Yeah. Like, wow, you know, like meeting some of your idols and, and actually getting a chance to talk to them, even for a minute, mm-hmm. you know, it really helped me kind of feel that what I was doing was important and it made it have more, even more meaning for me. That's amazing. So, like speaking or going back to when you said, like when you came, when you wanted to come back to Chicago to be around, you know, in an environment that you understand and people who understand you, how much has like growing up in Chicago influenced your your work? Um, so, like academically and also like the work you do in the community. I think Chicago has been an incredible influence on who I am and my sort of perception of the world and everything. Um, I mean, Chicago gets criticized all the time for being so segregated, one of the most segregated cities, I guess, on the planet or something. (laughs) Um, And and it's always always framed in a negative way. Um, But I feel that and for me, in a way, it was kind of a positive thing because I grew up in segregated Chicago in an all-black neighborhood, went to predominantly black schools. And then, I mean, I ultimately, for some of high, uh, grammar school and high school, I went to Whitney Young. So I did go to integrated schools. But um, the thing about that is, I mean, growing up in segregated, predominantly black neighborhoods surrounded and going to schools where there were black teachers, um, going to stores that were black owned and growing up in Chicago where there was Operation Push and um, the Nation of Islam and Soft Sheen and, you know, um, Johnson Publishing Company and all of these black owned businesses, I mean, Parker Sausage and on and on and on. I mean, it was normal to me for there to be black people who owned businesses, um, who owned property, who owned real estate companies, um, who owned publications. I mean, you know, Johnson Publishing Company had a radio station and they had, you know, numerous magazines and they had the fashion fair, you know. So, I mean, there were so many examples to me growing up of black people who ran companies. And so... For me, it was, it, it just didn't seem unusual okay. for, for black people to run things. Okay. Um, and I feel like that was a really good message and it definitely influenced my thought process of not, of feeling like I could do whatever I wanted to do and, and the fact that I'm black wouldn't stop me mm-hmm. um, because I saw so many role models and there was such a sense of, Black culture being um, celebrated in the city, being uh, represented. Um, And so I was very aware and um, knowledgeable about Black history and about Black culture and feeling a sense of pride about it. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And so in talking about you said you were seeking, you were always seeking um, to create this positive representation of Black people that you didn't see. Um, can you tell us about what it means for you or what, what your citational praxis is in the, um, in, your, in the work that you do and also in the classroom? How do you hold space for Black women's histories and contributions? Well, I mean, I teach business writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that, in that, um, 
topic, there's not a whole lot of space to cite black women mm-hmm. because I'm teaching students who like how to write a professional memo, okay. you know, um, to their staff or like how to write a proposal, just any kind of proposal, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm not necessarily dealing with history mm-hmm. or like identity politics or okay. anything like that to my students. Um, but I do believe, I honestly believe that my presence alone um, makes an impact okay. because the great majority of the students that um, that I have are not black. Mm-hmm. And um, the few that I do have, um, I, I think that, that it has an impact on both. Um, I think that it's important for non-black students, especially white male, mm-hmm. um, to see black women in a position of authority. To, to see black women in a position of knowledge that they can actually learn from um, and, and sort of ro- a role model that they have to respect. And I think for some of the students, it might be the first time that they've had a black woman mm-hmm. as um, somebody who is actually imparting knowledge and, and skill and, and actually um, asserting any level of authority over them. And so, so I, so that's a long way to say, I think just me being there, Mm -hmm. um, has an impact. I think for some of the black students, it also has an impact in a different way because I represent something again, that they might not have seen that much. And so I think I can tell that some of the the black students are feel like, oh my God, finally, there's Mm -hmm. somebody who looks like me and they feel, I think they they feel like they can interact with me in a different way than they might interact with some of the other professors. Okay. Um, and so in all, in, for every different kind of reason, I think that my presence is important for the students. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's an interesting experience for me, right. you know, because I've had, um, <laughs> I've had different kinds of interaction with, with the different students. Mm-hmm. Um, where I've had some of the white male, some, you know, they, they question, (laughs) Uh you know, my knowledge or they question my authority and I've had to assert myself and I'm like, you know what, you're a student, I'm the professor, I know what I'm talking about, whatever, (laughs) you know, and so that's interesting for me and I'm like, you know, they just need to learn Mm -hmm. that they don't know everything just because they're a white male. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've also experienced some um, black uh, students. I was, I was going to try to distinguish it between gender, but I think it's pretty much haven't so much. But um, th- there's an interesting dynamics that go on there mm-hmm. um, as well because I think some feel that they can be a little bit less formal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with me because I, I'm a sister. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, no. Just because I'm black doesn't mean that I'm your girlfriend. Right. You know, right. so, so it's interesting mm-hmm. just kind of managing the different kind of dynamics. Um, so you're also a part of like so many different organizations um, and working on different projects in Chicago, uh, especially dedicated to documenting the lives of African-Americans. So can you tell us more about that? Well, I mean, I'm working on still um, with Alderman King, who's on the Alderman of the Fourth Ward, um, working on a project that hopefully will be completed in July, um, as close to Ida's birthday as possible. It'll probably be after her birthday, but still close, mm-hmm. close to the date. Um, so, 
hopefully that'll happen. I mean, I've, I've learned now that I've been doing this for a while to hesitate to give exact mm-hmm. dates and exactly what's happening because so many things change at the last minute or just, just a lot of stuff goes on. Um, but hopefully um, that will happen. That's, that will be a um, sort of tribute to the, the community. Right. Um, so it's not just only about Ida B. Wells, but the community overall in Bronzeville. Um, so that's pretty much done. It's just a matter of, of making the plans for the unveiling and okay. all of that kind of stuff. And that's a whole nother, that's like another job. <laughs> um, there's one thing to get to do the project and then there's another thing for the unveiling. So, um, that should be done. Um, I'm working, I'm, I've started the process. I'm really early into the process of working with, um, well, actually sort of gaining support with different um, people and organizations to have some tributes to Illinois suffragists. Okay, okay. Um, and like I said, everything is really in the infant stages, um, kind of just the idea, brainstorming stages of what can the state of Illinois do to, rep- to recognize the contributions of suffragists that are from Illinois. Not a national kind of focus, right. but a local statewide focus. Um, so I'm talking to some uh, politicians and some people that are in the arts world and that kind of thing to gain support and trying to get the ball rolling in some organizations. I'm kind of like putting feelers out and seeing who's in, you know, and how can we work together and make this happen. So, I mean, I've gotten a lot of enthusiastic responses, and then we'll just kind of see where things go from there. Um, And then on a national basis, um, I've been involved in conversations. I mean, I participated in a forum um, at the National Portrait Gallery, which was a group of around 20 um, scholars and people who work in the museum world about how to commemorate the centennial of the suffrage movement. And there was just a lot of dialogue. It was a whole day kind of um, programs and dialogue about the complex story of the suffrage movement and how it needs to be told in all of its complexity yes. <laughs> um, because people are you know, starting to be more vocal about this narrative that has been sort of pushed about, you know, once upon a time there was Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton in 1848. They've been in Seneca Falls and they started everything and they ran everything Mm -hmm. and, you know, whatever. So that whole sort of narrative is being dismantled. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's, there are people out here who are forcing um, that narrative to be expanded and um, told in all of its complexity because mm-hmm. it wasn't that simple. It wasn't a straight line. It wasn't two women only. Only white women. Uh, exactly. <laughs> um, so Native American women, you know, Latinx women, Black women, Asian women, are starting to speak up mm-hmm. and say, "No, you can't just say that." The, you know, there were. It was a multinational, multiracial, you know, initiative, and each group has a slightly different story. Mm-hmm. And all of it is part of the whole story. Um, So that's been interesting to me, just to get involved in these dialogues and brainstorming on how, you know, 
how can this story be told without getting so complex that people sort of lose the message mm-hmm. because, you know, it is very complex. Right. And so you don't want to be like, okay, well, this happened, but asterisk, 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 footnote. you know, footnote, 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 <laughs> you know, and then everybody's like confused. Right. Uh, See. <laughs> you know, uh, so it, it, it's a challenge. Um, but I think the fact that I have, there are so many other people who have the same concerns that I mm-hmm. do makes me feel validated um, that, you know, I'm not the only one who's like, wait, hold up. Let's like, you know, put the the car in reverse and go back, you know, and let's take the other route because you cannot erase and gloss over all of the contributions that all of these women made, you know. Um, And I mean, yes, I'm, I'm related to Ida B. Wells and she was involved in the suffrage movement as well as all kinds of other things that she did. Um, but I don't feel that I'm just advocating for my ancestor. I'm mm-hmm. advocating for all of the women mm-hmm. that are marginalized and put in asterisks and footnotes. You know, we're not. We need to be right. front and center, right in the middle of the story. Right. Um, so I just think it's important um, for, for because the women of color had multiple fronts that they were fighting at the same time. It wasn't just about getting the right to vote. Right. It was about being validated as women as well. I mean, being, you know, recognized right. as women right. by white women. Right. You know, so it's not like you're just fighting about getting for women being having the right to vote. You're 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 fighting to have white women actually acknowledge the fact that you're a woman too right. and you need to be in part of this women's movement. Um, and actually wrote an article about how there's, I feel, a direct correlation between what went on in the um, suffrage movement as far as, you know, efforts to marginalize and and um, sort of ignore black women all the way to today when it came to the Women's March, you know, you know 2016, 2017. And, um, so I think there's just kind of a trajectory that need in a parallel that needs to be recognized um saying that you want that you're all about women but then but not these women and not those women and not these women and not those women and um or taking credit for work that somebody else did and so we're constantly fighting you know to be recognized and included and have our work recognized and not appropriated and not you know stolen and taken somebody else take credit for it and that kind of thing. I mean, it's just never ending battle. Well, keep us updated on that because that (laughs) is what we are about here at Side Black Women. You advocated for your great-grandmother to be memorialized in Chicago as far as with the monument, but also um, by the renaming of, um, what was it, Congress Parkway inside of B. Wells Drive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that there was uh, formerly the Ida B. Wells homes um, here in the Bronzeville area that were created in 1941, and then they were demolished in 2008. Um, can you tell us a little bit, like, what are, what are your thoughts um, on both the demolition of those housing projects and then also, because it's a, it's a historically Black neighborhood that housed Black people from all different backgrounds, um, socioeconomically, um, but then also... Ida B. Wells um, Drive being located downtown in this like business district, um, especially where there's like this strong flow of global capital. Like, so what are your thoughts on both the demolition and then also this the location of where the Ida B. Wells Drive 
is. Well, the demolition of the Ida B. Wells homes is what um, prompted me to to advocate for a monument. Um, so, because I saw the homes coming down, and I was very disturbed by the idea that those homes would be eliminated and not replaced with something that still commemorated who she was because she was not a home. She was a woman. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, okay, well, if this city feels that the homes for whatever reason are not viable anymore, um, then, but she still needs to be remembered. And so, again, my family was like, we write a letter. Because um, <laughs> we were talking about it, and they were all like, write a letter, you write the letter. <laughs> so I wrote a letter to um, Mayor Richard M. Daly at the time and basically said, you know, the Ida B. Wells homes have been eliminated, and so what is the city going to do to still honor who Ida B. Wells, the woman, was? Because she was a woman. She was not a housing project. And that was one thing that started to bother me also was that I felt like she, she who, who she was as a woman was starting to get lost. Right. And, you know, you would ask people, like, have you ever heard of Ida B. Wells? They're like, oh, yeah, the Wells homes are the Ida B. Wells homes. They didn't know who she was. And so... That started to bother me that it was just kind of associated with the community and nobody, a lot of people did not know anything about her. Wow. And so when I contacted um, Mayor Daly, there was a committee that had already been formed. Okay. And they, uh, I was asked to join the committee to represent the family, myself and my, and my father were asked to be on the, on the uh, committee. And so, but when I joined in 2008, I can't... Um, the, the, the only thing was that, well, you know, the city should do something. That was it. I mean, the, the, what the something was no had needed to be decided. And so it took a while to, you know, batting around a lot of ideas, doing research on and on to come up with the, the final idea to have a monument. And we all decided on the committee that we wanted to have a monument, not a statue. Okay. Um, we did not want it to be um, in her likeness, um, so you know, so it looks like a real person or whatever. We felt that we wanted to have something modern and interpretive um, because we felt she was so multidimensional and so multifaceted. She was involved in so many different things mm -hmm. that to try to find one figurine or one image of her that represented her would be too difficult for us. And so we decided we wanted to have something that kind of where the people, when they look at it, they can get their own interpretation. And so it becomes an interactive kind of way of engaging with who she was. And there will be images of her on the on the project, but the actual artwork will be interpretive. Um, so that would give us the opportunity to have multiple images of her. Right. Um, and so I felt it was important, and everybody else on the committee felt it's important for her, Ida B. Wells, to be remembered. And like I said, the impetus of it was the the, the homes being demolished. Yeah. Um, and we felt it was important for it to be located on the land where the homes used to be, and that would be part of the narrative of, of not just who Ida was, but on this land stood the Ida B. Wells homes. So the history of those homes would be maintained as well. Right. Um, 
Now, so to me, that's important because it's re really close to like two block, two, two to three block walking distance from the house that she actually lived in, which is a landmark on 3624 South King Drive. The monument will be at 37th and Langley, so that's only a couple of blocks east. Um, and then what I'm working with on, on um, with Alderman King on would go on 37th and King Drive. Okay. So, I mean, you could literally just walk, you know, just keep walking and, and you would see all these different pieces that are associated with her life. Um, Miriam Kaba actually has worked with Essence McDowell to put together a walking tour of Bronzeville women, um, and I'm sure that's included in their walking tour. So there are people, not me, <laughs> um, that are working on walking tours of the history of Bronzeville and all of that, and she's included. Um, so as far as Ida B. Wells Drive, um, I thought it was amazing that the city of Chicago uh, actually did it, you know, mm -hmm. got a, a, a street named after not just, I mean, it was, this is the first street ever in the history of Chicago to be named after any woman and of color or <laughs> anybody of color, yeah. period. And she happens to be a woman and a person mm -hmm. of color um, in the downtown area. And so for my great grandmother to be the one that was chosen, mm -hmm. I just feel like that is an amazing mm -hmm. honor especially how it ended up being Congress, because it was originally, we had proposed Balboa, okay. um, which, you know, is a smaller street. But there was so much pushback and controversy with um, the Italian-American community leaders, I should say, um, that, you know, kind of went back to the drawing board and thought about other alternatives. And I, I just think it's kind of ironic that, that Congress ends up being a much bigger street, um, much bigger uh, visibility because it feeds into two mm -hmm. interstates. Um, so like, <laughs> um, so it kind of worked out, right. you know, that, that that there was pushback because we would have we would have originally had a smaller street. Yeah. Um, I think it's kind of cool that it, that it ends up being on the same street where Roosevelt University is, mm -hmm. considering and. Um, Columbia College in the um, class that I teach is, is in that building oh, at 33 okay. uh, um, East um, Ida B. Wells Drive. So that's pretty interesting. And that is also is the building where the journalism department is for Columbia. Oh, okay. So like that is like ties. amazing. And then, um, you know, the Harold Washington Library is on that street as well. Mm -hmm. And so when you say the business district, yeah, that's true. But there's also the educational district. Yeah. You know, you have mm -hmm. the library and mm -hmm. two universities. Mm -hmm as well as the auditorium theater that are all on that street. Okay. Um, so to me, it's more about, it's, it's more of a, the information intellectual district, okay. you know, that particular street. Okay. Um, so also another question about that, like what kind of impact do you think that has or will have in the future, um, you know, naming that street after Ida B. Wells, especially, I guess, in light of, you know, all of the issues that, we have in Chicago with police violence and how many of us would call this neo-lynching. Like, this is a continuation of lynching. So what do you think that impact will be or has been? I don't know. I don't know if one a street name will, will change <laughs> an entire culture. Um, I, I think that's a bit, a bit of an ambitious kind of, um, you know, thing to expect. Mm -hmm. But I think what I've seen on, on social media, um, and I'm pretty much just on Twitter, um, is the feeling that people have expressed that just seeing the name Ida B. Wells Drive in a major high visibility 
uh, location in a city the size of Chicago makes people feel a sense of pride um, that African-Americans and African-American women are recognized as being integral parts of this country. Um, and I think that's important because we do have a lot of honorary street names all over the city. We do have major streets in Chicago that are named after African-Americans, but they all right now um, tend to be in the, quote, black community. And so I think that having a name of an African-American woman who stood for equality, she fought for civil rights, um, I think that... It's a subliminal kind of message, I think, that black women are important part of the country's narrative, mm -hmm. an important part of the country's um, history. And Ida B. Wells Drive runs parallel to the, the streets that are named after presidents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so think about that. You know, if you're driving and you see Washington and Madison and Monroe and Van Buren and then Adams and then Ida B. Wells drive right, right, right there. I mean, to me, you can't get any better, you know, to to kind of in sort of, like I said, it's sort of a subliminal way, say she is just as important as the people who were the presidents of this country. Right. Um, some of them have, you know, questionable kind of histories themselves. So the fact that she was born into slavery and now she has a street named after her that runs parallel to people who owned slaves. Mm -hmm. So what kind of story is that, you right. know, from an American history standpoint? Um, I think that that's something to reflect on. And I'm sure people could probably write all kinds of things about what that means. Right. <laughs> um, so what are some of the most challenging and um, rewarding aspects of what you do? Hmm. I never really thought about that before. Um, honestly, I mean, this is going to sound weird, but to me, for, for me personally, and I don't know how, I always feel weird asking other people how they feel about it. Um, and actually, everybody's not the same, so it's not even like I can take a poll. But, but I would just say for me personally, one of the challenges that I feel is being seen. Um, <clears throat> I feel that, and it's not a negative, but this is just my reality. Mm -hmm. I feel that there's, thank God, I mean, there is a lot of interest in my great-grandmother, mm -hmm. and people are inspired by her, and they want to learn about her, and there's, you know, an enthusiasm about um, all she did and what she was about, and people want to... Um, you know, do, do more more work up about who she was and to learn about her and all of that. And I am doing what I can to help people learn. Um, but there are times when I feel that I have to fight mm -hmm. in order for me, Michelle, to be seen. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> because I think that some people are so fascinated by who my great-grandmother was, and they're fascinated by the fact that I'm related to this woman that they have so much respect for, that they don't see me, Michelle. They see somebody who's related to Ida B. Wells. Right. And I feel like there are times when I have to fight mm -hmm. and, and, and really assert myself to make sure that people mention my name, right. um, to make sure that people recognize that I have a life and I have my own accomplishments 
because there is a tendency to say Michelle Duster, great granddaughter of Ida B. Wells, and oh, Michelle Duster, the great granddaughter of Ida B. Wells, and the great granddaughter. And I'm like, um, I do have a title. I do have, you know, I mean, and and I've had conversations with people where I've almost ended up in arguments because they want to make it seem like, well, you know, your great grandmother is such as this and this and this. And I'm like, but why are you acting like? I mean, they're 15, or well, now they're 18, great grandchildren. So what, if you're saying great-granddaughter of Ida B. Wells, how does that distinguish me from my other right. cousins? You know, I mean, the, I am an individual person. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's just, I feel like, kind of a personal challenge. Okay. And, I, and I don't think it's unique um, so much, to, you know, about me. I just think that sometimes women, and I've had conversations with some other women about this, that, you know, there's a tendency socially for people to connect women with who they're related or connected to. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen it even with, like, with Sabrina Fulton, okay. um, Trayvon Martin's mother. Right. You know, I've seen headlines that are like, Trayvon Martin's mother is running, running for, for this. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm, I don't know if you've seen it. I'm like, she has a name. Yeah, she has a name. Yeah. You know, it just bothers me when women, I haven't seen it so much with men. Maybe I don't pay as much attention. Um, but this tendency to not say the person's name and only talk about them in relation to somebody else. Right. You know, Michael Brown's Still mother like and his mother. thing going on. Like right. You know, this is person's <laughs> wife and this person's mother and this person's, you know, whatever. And I'm like, say her name, you know, say <laughs> her. Right. I mean, not just about, you know, state violence yeah. against women, but erasing mm-hmm. women's mm-hmm. names, you know, as if they themselves as an individual person right do not have their own identity right. that is separate and apart from whomever they're actually related mm-hmm. to. Um, and so I, I feel like that's a little bit of a struggle. And I don't, like I said, I don't think it's necessarily unique to only me. I think it's a struggle for women, mm-hmm. you know, in general to, to have our own identity and our own accomplishments recognized Psych as being, <laughs> exactly, I mean, recognized as, as our identity, mm-hmm. is, is connected to who we are as an individual person, standing on our own, mm-hmm. you know, and that doesn't take away from the fact that you are related to or connected to somebody else, right. but that but that you as an individual person have your own, mm-hmm. you know, accomplishments mm-hmm. and your own identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just a challenge that, that I have found. Um, and your second question, I mean, there, there are a lot of rewards as far as um, just having the opportunities to interact with a lot of interesting people, mm-hmm. to exchange information and ideas with a lot of people that I admire, um, that I feel that I can learn from. Um, I feel like I'm entering sort of a world, a different world now than I really ever thought about. Um, I just, I mean, I'm not one of these people that had my, you know, 30 year plan and every five years I'm going to do this. I mean, I just feel like I'm kind of going with the flow of where, where life is taking me. I can't plan, mm-hmm. you know, where I'm going. I really, I just feel like I can't because so many unexpected things have happened. It seems um, like it's working for you. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I just, I mean, actually, I, I feel like it's kind of funny to me because 
for the long, I would say for the first 20 years of my career, I always felt like the weirdo, you know, compared to, you know, I think it's human nature to compare yourself to other people, right? And but so, I think that what you're saying <laughs> is definitely like, especially for our listeners who are a lot of people who are either like up and coming in academia or just entering academia or who aren't in like academia at all. Like, I think that what you're saying is really going to resonate with a lot of our <laughs> listeners, like honestly. So go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm and I'm I'm a pretty honest person, and I think some people are kind of surprised, you know, that I'm I'm willing to just say, look, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I for the first twenty years, honestly, you know, of my career, I I felt like a weirdo. Mm-hmm. I felt like I didn't fit anywhere mm-hmm. because I was comparing. Kind of, I mean, I think it's human nature. You're kind of comparing yourself against your friends and the people that are around you and that kind of thing. And I just felt like everybody knew what they were doing with their lives, you know. They, I mean, I was surrounded by people who were, like I said, a lot of attorneys. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty um, straightforward kind of law, I mean, um, line to follow. I mean, you go to law school, and once you get out of law school, your first year, second year, third year, associate, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of, there's a path that you take. The same thing with medicine, you know, um, and some of my friends went into corporate America, and you go through being whatever an associate, and then you go through being a manager and a senior junior VP and a VP, on and on and on. And so I was the only person I knew in the social circle that I was in that was interested in something else, something different outside of that. I was just, I felt like everybody I knew was going into law and they were making so much more money than me. (laughs) And, um, you know, and I felt like they know what they want to do with it. And I was trying different things. You know, I thought, okay, I want to work in advertising. I did that for a while. And then I was like, mm, you know, I want to do something different. And I was kind of constantly grasping for something that I felt would be, I knew what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to do it. Like I wanted to tell stories about positive stories about African-Americans, but I didn't know how to do it. And I kept trying different things. I wanted to to highlight the positive parts of our culture. I mean, that's kind of a vague type of thing. So I mean, like I worked at the, you know, Schomburg Center, I worked in, and then after a while I was like, okay, I'm not making any money. I need to like get serious and grow up and make some money and have a, you know, real job. And I mean, you start feeling pressure, you know? And so I ended up doing a couple of things that I thought were more quote responsible, you know, to, to be more stable and that kind of thing. And then it really, really wasn't, really wasn't for me. And so finally, um, it's funny how life works out because I, um, the, the, the great recession of 2008 pushed me out of what I thought was like finally being responsible adult kind of adulting. Um, and I was like, okay, well that didn't work out. So why don't I just say, forget all of this and just go for what I, what has meaning for me. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes when you, when you kind of experience, um, you know, something really not going right, mm-hmm. then it makes you more brave mm-hmm. Because you're like, nothing else can be worse. I mean, you know. So I, I just made a decision. I'm like, I don't care if I never make any money. I'm going to just do what I want to do. And I will right. just make, I'll figure out some kind of way to make things work. Um, and so I've been very willing um, in a crazy way. And I've had to constantly make myself try to convince myself that I'm not really crazy um, to just keep going forward in this down this path that has no that has no sort of 
prepared steps on how to on how to go. And I felt like there weren't a lot of people I could talk to to get advice from on how to get wherever I'm going because I didn't really know where I was going. I'm like, I just know that this feels right to me right this minute. And I don't know if it's going to work out. I don't know if it's the right thing. I'm just, I'm just giving it a shot. Um, but there's been a lot of times when I have felt very sort of, um, lonely, like isolated or whatever, because so few people really understand the concept of doing something that you don't know what you're doing, you know, and there's a lot of pressure to be like, well, what exactly are you doing? How do you define yourself? Who are you? What do you do? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm just kind of like telling stories. And there's so many things that don't pay, you know, and it's like you're just trying to learn and you're um, and it's not like in a in a in an institution that has any stability and. So I feel like I've made a whole lot of sacrifices um, and, and gone down a, a path that I think most people might not have the, I don't want to say the guts, but maybe the, the constitution to be willing to make so many sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but I just kind of kept going like, and every time I was like, I need to get a real job. Like, get serious, Michelle. You're not getting any younger. You know, you need to like do something like for real. Um, then something else would come up that would say, okay, well, okay, well, after you finish this, then you'll get a real job and do something like you really should do. And then as soon as I would finish that, I'm like, okay, let me start looking. Like, I'll go in Indeed. I'll find a job. I'll get a real job. And then something else would happen. And so it's just interesting. Like, And so that's there's a point where I started feeling like there's something bigger than me. Mm-hmm that's pushing me in this direction because every time I'm like ready to say, forget it, this is insanity. I need to be like serious about my life. I need to get serious. Then something else would happen. And there I'm serious. I mean, there are moments when I'm like, there is a bigger force out here that's pushing me bigger than who I am because I am not, I feel like I'm, I'm not making some of these decisions. Like there are things are coming to me. Um, so it's just a, it's an interesting life experience, and it's made me and that and me kind of circling back, sort of relating it to my great grandmother. I think that there might have been a little bit of that with her life too, because when I the more I've read about, I mean, she you know she started as a teacher, and then she decided she was not going to comply with the Jim Crow laws um, of the you know riding on the train, and she was like, screw that, I'm a, I'm a lady, I'm going to ride on the train. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she made a decision like, I'm going to be a civil rights activist. I think she was just like, no, you know, I'm a woman and I'm you're not going to humiliate me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, so that pushed her into a position of being, um, I don't want to say famous, but it just, like, she wrote about this situation mm-hmm. and then it got, in today's terms, went viral, you right. know, because <laughs> the, the um, story that she wrote got p- picked up by several newspapers that were, you know, national and that kind of thing. And then when it came to her friends, I mean, how she ended up becoming this you know, sort of anti-lynching crusader was that it was personal. Right. Um, you know, her friends were, were killed, and so she decided to speak up and write about it, and she knew it was dangerous. But I don't, I mean, I think that on, on some level, she was pushed, you know, by something. It was circumstances. It was right. a, it was a um, Convergence of circumstances, you know, her interest and um, and and I'm sure like her personality that all kind of came together. But I don't think she set out to say I am going to be 
a civil rights activist right. and I'm going to look for things that are going to push me into being a, a public figure. Right. I don't think anybody necessarily makes that decision. I think things happen and it kind of pushes you right. into that into that position. <laughs> Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, and also, that's another thing that I love about like the site Black Women podcast is that when we speak to Black women, we get these beautiful, candid conversations that I, I never hear anywhere else. Like, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that's like the type of honesty that we need as Black women to, to one hold space for and to hear because. A lot of us feel like I don't know what I'm doing, and it feels nice to know like this this accomplished woman is you know has felt that way or sometimes still feels that way. So um, thank you. And then lastly, is there anything you would like people to know about you? Like something we didn't cover or just <laughs> wow, um, <laughs> or one takeaway you would like people to have um, leaving this podcast. I mean, a takeaway, I guess, would just be um, pretty much recapping what I've sort of said as far as my personal journey or my kind of how things have unfolded with my <laughs> um, my interest in trying to find a, a space um, to to do what what makes what makes me interested, what kind of keeps me going. Um, and I mean, I tell people like all the time, because I mean, I interact with college, well, you know, I teach. So mm -hmm. I mean, I interact with college students, but even sometimes I go back to my, my alma mater and talk to some of the students and that kind of thing. And I just try to tell people to not put pressure on themselves, to have such a clear um, idea of what they should be doing um, at such a young age, I feel that and I think a lot of students put pressure on themselves to choose a major that's going to be um, marketable and and they're making these decisions about what they want to do in life based on how much they think it will be employable, mm -hmm. um, not necessarily based on what they're interested in or what they're good at. Mm -hmm. And so I feel it's important to try to not worry so much about what you think is the quote responsible or marketable thing to do but but to follow what you're actually interested in what you enjoy and what has meaning for you mm -hmm. because i think in the end opportunities will come your way because you're more willing to do work because you enjoy doing the work and you're going to be right. good at it. And so it will become apparent that, um, that this is a talent that you have and this is something that you enjoy and you have, it has meaning for you and you will automatically rise in that in environment or in that field. Um, so I think it kind of works out when you, that's just my advice. And I, I mean, I've seen a lot of students where their parents, you know, because they're paying their tuition and that kind of thing, they their parents put pressure on them, like, oh, you have to be pre-med, oh, you have to be pre-law, you have to do this, you have to do this. I'm not paying all this money for you to go and do, you know, study art history or, you know, where you'd major in dance and that kind of thing. Like, they just, you know, there's a, a sort of devaluation of things, of topics or, or um, studies that are not considered to be, like, super marketable or corporate-oriented or whatever, um, but I just feel like, you know, look at people like, like, um, 
Arthur Mitchell or James, uh, Judas Jameson or, you know, um, James Carey Marshall. I mean, th- you know, people, if you, I think if you really follow what you're interested in and you're naturally good at, and it's not being forced, mm-hmm. then you will do okay, mm-hmm. ultimately. And, and But you, you might have to struggle, and you might have to stay committed and believe somehow it will work out in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like my life is a testament to that because um, there have been plenty of times when I have felt like I'm, I'm really not being practical here and I need to, quote, get a real job and that kind of thing. And I've made so little money compared to so many other people I know. I mean, it's just, there have been so many times when I'm like, this is, what am I doing with my life? This is not logical. Um, But then I'm like, but I actually feel happy. Um, I know physically my health is better than it had been before when I was forcing myself into situations that didn't really fit right. Um, I mean, I'm being for real. Like there were times when I, I was struggling, like having colds and flus and all this other stuff. And then when I got out of that environment, I mean, all of a sudden I was cured. And I'm like, you know, there stress. is such a thing as, yes, yeah, stress can really affect you physically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, trying to be true mm-hmm. to who you are, I think it saves you. Stress is, is saves your health, right. um, and money isn't everything. Right. No, thank you so much. I think that, that was like great advice. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Thank you for um, you know spending your time here, going over your your work, uh, your history, and also um, Ida B. Wells's um, work in history. Thank you so much. I it was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sight Black Women. Follow us at Sight Black Women on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our new website, www.sightblackwomencollective.org. And remember, it's simple. Sight Black Women. We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world. Mm-hmm.